Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Dr. Misha Kogan, Associate Professor of Medicine here at GW and Medical Director of the GW Center for Integrative Medicine. Today, we're joined by physician, scientist, and medical geographer Sunil Argawal, MD, who's the co-founder and co-director of Advanced Integrative Medical Science Institute in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Argawal's primary clinical and research work is in palliative care, rehabilitation medicine, medical cannabis care integration, and psychedelic integrative medicine. Board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation, as well as hospice and palliative medicine. He has served as the chair of the Integrative Medicine Special Interest Group at the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine Podcast, uh, Sunil. It, I've always wanted to do this podcast with you. Um, I've uh, been following your work now for quite some time. It's so exciting. So, welcome. Thank you so much, Misha. It's an honor to be with you, and I've been looking forward to this for a long time as well. Great. So, Sunil, what are etheogenic and psychedelic-assisted therapies? Yes. Um, well, uh, let me uh, let me explain to the, your audience that um, this the term entheogen, which um, is a term that was actually coined in 1979, um, and it was to try to link up the uh, to try to sort of retire words like psychedelic or hallucinogen, um, which uh, the researchers uh, felt carried lots of sort of baggage because of the politics of the 60s. Uh, and entheogen, which it, it means basically to that a substance which generates the sense of divine or God um, within or occasions that. And they were tying, they were specifically referring to substances that had been used throughout history, uh, throughout, like back to prehistory, um, that had been used in, in ritual or shamanic contexts. Um, and those substances and substances that are like them, like they're cogeners, like they're chemical versions or similarities. So that, that's what an entheogen is. And, um, and then the psychedelic, uh, we still use that, that term. That was coined in the 1960s by uh, a Canadian doctor named Humphrey Osmond, and he was trying to uh, come up with a word. Uh, he was basing it on Aldous Huxley's writings, the, the famous uh, uh, philosopher and uh, writer in the 20, early 20th century who also um, wrote a lot about these substances. Um, and he said, okay, well, why don't we use a word that helps, says manifesting the mind uh, or expanding the mind? And that's what, um, that's what psychedelic means. So these, the use of these types of substances in, thera- in therapeutic purposes, in healing, um, and, uh, in, um, in, in growth, in spiritual development, in treatment of trauma, in treatment of life-threatening uh, existential distress, that's what, that's what we mean with the use of these as a therapy. And that involves medical uh, evaluation, preparation, um, guidance, and integration. Um, so, Neil, why did you get involved in medical cannabis and, and entheogenic psychedelic-assisted therapies? Well, uh, the, I'm, it be, because uh, I wanted to, I found, I, found, I found them useful in my own healing, first of all. 
I'm not a robot. I'm a human being. I've gone through my own challenges. And when, when I was, uh, in my twenties, um, I found, I found that these substances were, were right, right, very, very helpful for me to deal with different, uh, aspects of trauma I had growing up, um, and, uh, and healing. And, and then as a, as a student, uh, I was really interested in, in, uh, chemistry and the brain and mind. Uh, and, um, I was fascinated to understand that more and more research was being done to start to understand the way in which, for example, cannabis and cannabinoids interact with the brain and nervous system. A whole new receptor system had been discovered, a whole new method of neurological signaling, basically, uh, which was a kind of a feedback system, uh, which was widespread. And I, I thought that was such a huge finding. So, um, and then with, um, psychedelic therapies, um, you know, same thing. There was more and more being discovered and understood about the nature of consciousness and what we call the default mode network uh, and um, kind of the way in which, um, you know, standard egoic frameworks, uh, sometimes the somatic, the the way in which the body can somaticize or uh, get into a sort of a defensive posture uh, and then the way that psychedelics or medicines that disrupt the default mode can help lead to um, new new ways of, of of being in the body, interoception, awareness of yourself. So all of that, to me, was a big scientific breakthrough in um, in healing. And and I thought that these kind of substances really need to be um, utilized in medicine. And I, I wanted to do. I did an MD PhD. So I wanted to do research. I wanted to develop new new treatments. I didn't want to just um, use the same treatments that you know I w- that were being utilized. I, I, so that's how I um, tried to find a way to stitch them into my into my research and and, and work and ultimately advocacy as well. That's a big part of what um, what's what's been needed to move this forward because because of the the, the laws that I was mentioning earlier in the '60s. Great. Um, and, you know, Sunil, just, despite this, the fact that uh, all the substances we're discussing still uh, DEA Schedule 1, meaning that they don't have a official therapeutic use in a clinical care, but their popularity and their use uh, is growing rapidly. Uh, just recently, in the last election, uh, this past fall, D.C. had essentially decriminalized um, psilocybin uh, mushrooms. But can you briefly discuss uh, the current evidence for use, even though they're, they're not formally legal in the whole country, but definitely evidence is increasing, um, and maybe say what you think, where do you think the kind of the next step of evidence is going to be going to? Certainly. Um, let me just first start by saying that there is one substance, uh, there's actually probably a few psychedelic substances or entheogenic substances that are um, not um, highly controlled. Um, and, and those are being utilized in therapeutic care. So one example being ketamine. Ketamine is a synthetic substance, but uh, it was made in 19, uh, early 60s uh, by Park Davis, uh, the pharmaceutical company. But uh, it really, at certain doses, um, below the, it's used as an anesthetic in medicine. It's a, a totally approved anesthetic for decades. It's a WHO essential medicine list. 
but at, at sub-anesthetic doses, um, people can certainly have psychedelic uh, experiences for a couple of hours, like two hours, uh, one and a half, two hours. And that can be very profound. Um, and and um, uh, actually a lot of work in palliative medicine, uh, people are interested in the use of ketamine because it, it actually can simulate what's called the near-death experience without actually, you know, having to go through a dying process. So that's, that's a very important um, uh, tool to, to have. And then the other substance I was <clears throat> going to mention is salvia divinorum. <clears throat> and then that's actually a, um, a substance that's been used in uh, Mexico, uh, the uh, Mazatec, uh, Oaxaca air region for, for a long time. Um, and um, it, it uh, actually has uh, some unique psychedelic properties. And right now, um, it's not controlled. But uh, it's, it has such unusual psychedelic properties, people haven't really found a way or there's not a whole lot of protocols around using it clinically. But it, it, it could be done. And there's research at Hopkins right now uh, where they're actually using one of the active chemicals in salvia, salvinorin A, um, and studying its effects in, in healthy subjects. And I, I believe they're going to be looking at depression and other, other indications. So it's, um, but um, anyway, so that being said, most of the other substances, um, and I didn't really mention them yet, but uh, you mentioned one, mushrooms uh, or psilocybin containing uh, mushrooms. Um, another one is uh, peyote, which um, uh, is mes mescaline containing cactus. Uh, another substance um, is a DMT, which uh, dimethyltryptamine, which is found in um, the South American tea called ayahuasca, which is a combination of a DMT containing uh, flower or herb and a vine, um, Benisteropsis capi, which contains uh, an MAO inhibitor, <coughs> which which allows the DMT to be taken up in uh, in the in the gut. So those are like. Three big examples of other other substances as well, iboga, ibogaine. Um, so all of those substances uh, or their active chemicals are listed in Schedule One of the <coughs> of the DEA. And yes, there is a huge move now to decriminalize them in various uh, cities uh, uh, throughout the country, um, and I'm 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 sure that's going to continue uh, and at, at higher levels. Uh, and actually, the state of Oregon just this week um, decriminalized all substances. Uh, it's, a, it's sort of like a, a parking ticket infraction. So it's not exactly like zero penalty, but it's, it's not a, any criminal penalty for certain amounts. And that includes all these substances as well. So that's, a, that's the way the trend is going in terms of policy. And I, I know that, um, you know, this is going to be pick, taken up, I think, at the national level as well with the national policy at least there are signs of that. We'll, we'll see. But um, so then, then the uh, the other context in which uh, access is happening is in the clinical trials that you mentioned. So more and more, uh, <clears throat> more and more settings, uh, scientists, clinical scientists are giving these substances to both healthy subjects and um, ill patients. Um, and already, I, I think, you know, just dozens of trials, really, uh, both in the U.S. and around the world have been done since the freeze was lifted. I, and that's sort of actually in the 90s. Uh, you started seeing some of the earliest studies on um, use of uh, substances like psilocybin in, um, in end-of-life care um, and use of uh, psilocybin in obsessive-compulsive disorder, 
was some of the early studies that were done in the U.S. in the 90s in LA, UCLA and University of New Mexico. And then, um, you know, the, the, big, uh, the big push happened at Johns Hopkins. Uh, that was, they really started a much more robust research group there, Roland Griffiths, and they did many studies and, and really were able to show in a, in a you know, long, longitudinal data like uh, they were the first ones to show that 14 months after a psilocybin experience in healthy subjects, that uh, they continued to report that it was one of the most significant experiences of their lifetime. You know, and um, persistent antidepressant effects have been demonstrated. Um, that's been shown in other studies now as well, longitudinally at uh, the other centers that are involved, which are many, many academic centers, NYU, University of Wisconsin, UCLA, uh, and the list is growing, and there's psychedelic research centers popping up at, um, you know, Harvard and UC Berkeley, and, and I'm sure more to come. So it's it's kind of a very fertile time. The evidence base, you know, there's a lot of phase two studies <coughs> happening. So you know, and then phase three study is underway right now, um, which is much a much larger study with a larger population. Um, that's happening with the substance MDMA, uh, which I haven't mentioned yet. It's that's a, an, a, again another pharmaceutical uh, psychedelic that was invented in Germany in the early 20th century, <clears throat> but then repopularized in the um, in the uh, in the in the uh, 60s and 70s by uh, a, a, a chemist in Berkeley, and um, and it's uh, already uh, been given breakthrough therapy status by the FDA for for PTSD, uh, and um, uh, it's really a um, remarkable um, entheogen uh, that uh, helps people process trauma and um, um, uh, improve uh, the ability to connect with others. We think through oxytocin. Anyway, so that's going through phase three trials right now. And I've heard the preliminary data is very good. So I think uh, more, more will be coming out. And I, I, I'm sure the psilocybin is going to be going through phase three studies uh, if they haven't already started. Many, there are many now private companies that are, um, that are uh, studying. Uh, one company called Compass, <clears throat> one company called USONA. Um, they are um, funding um, a development of psilocybin for depression. Uh, and I think it's, um, their studies are underway already. We have some nice data that have been presented, uh, in, in, the, that have studies that have already been done showing remarkable, like above the standard thresholds of response in depression. And this is with psilocybin assisted therapy. So it's not just to give people psilocybin. It's, they have preparation sessions. They have, um, they have an experiential session, they have integration, which means they follow up and talk about the experience with the person that was person or sometimes persons that were with them during the session. And then they do it again a couple of times. So it could be two, two or three cycles. Uh, and then they have a remarkable off the charts response to, to depression um, is what, the, what was reported at the American Psychiatric Association a couple of years ago. So that, that kind of data is out there. There's data on smoking cessation that, um, uh, Hopkins has uh, published as well, um, and that's very impressive to help people quit quit nicotine addiction is very hard, um, and psilocybin seems to really help. And then, um, what else is there? There there are studies on alcoholism that are underway. 
Um, and, and then I've, I, I've, we, I've mentioned a few times the uh, care, uh, cancer anxiety or end-of-life anxiety, very impressive responses on um, spiritual well-being and um, sense of, of mood and, and, and quality of life uh, that also is persistent. Uh, there's been at least three clinical trials now done in advanced cancer patients that have been published. So we have lots of good data. And more is going to come with the conclusion of these larger, larger studies. And then finally, I want to mention one more pathway that um, is still, we're still trying to work on. This is not a research pathway formally. It's, uh, it's called the right to try. And this is a, a federal law that was passed, I think, uh, in 2017, which, uh, and in many states, so over 40 states have laws like this too, this allows patients that are terminally ill, um, who are you know, medically defined to have a terminal illness, to have access under the right to try to any substance that could potentially help them that has completed a phase one clinical trial. It is still in development. Um, you know, advocates who passed this law um, felt that terminally ill patients don't have time to wait for the sometimes very multi-year process of developing a drug. And it's a drug that could potentially help them um, with their terminal illness. Uh, they should be able to have immediate access or much more less encumbered. And so under right to try psilocybin, uh, because it's completed clinical trials and actually MDMA as well, these would both be um, what, what they call eligible investigational drugs. And uh, right now, uh, we're, my clinic and I'm working with an attorney named uh, Catherine Tucker uh, who's taking this on, and we're raising, uh, it's like a public interest effort. We're raising money through a nonprofit in Colorado called the NOAC Society uh, to support our lots of legal efforts. And we have law firms trying to help to, and I have some patients that um, want to try this who have advanced cancer. And so we're asking the DEA for permission to, um, to buy it from one of the producers of, of, um, who are producing it for research that these patients should be able to have access without all the encumbrances of a, a formal clinical trial. So we're, we're waiting to hear back on that. And if they don't let us, then we, we want to also get permission to, to cultivate the mushrooms ourselves. Uh, so that's, that, that's another, that's another pathway that's, that should open up. And I fi finally, this is just the U S the U S is a very unusual country uh, in our drug laws and many other places have moved far beyond us. Um, and there are there are Jamaica and and uh, the in Holland, uh, Amsterdam, Newton, the Netherlands are two places where um, people can go today and have illegally administered psilocybin therapy. The psilocybin sessions um, are psilocybin is not controlled in those contexts, and um, so and and there are there are other places in the world that have actually um, moved ahead. So hopefully we'll. Um, some, and I have patients that have actually traveled to other parts of the world to access this care. Um, this is also happening with ayahuasca in South America. Many countries there, it's legal and allowed ayahuasca retreat centers. <clears throat> um, but uh, there is a problem with too much medical tourism happening in these places, and we, we need to start to do our own work here. That's such an amazing information. Um, I think I was just kind of reflecting while you were talking. Um, you know, both you and I, we have lots of patients who clearly can benefit from this. Um, 
you know, but I, I, I don't really have any practical information to give them at this point outside of what you just said, basically traveling outside. Um, I get regular emails asking, how can I access psilocybin? Um, what do you tell to those patients? Are you uh, putting them on your wait list? Are you referring them to Hopkins to see if they can qualify for the study? Or just how do you, how do you approach this? Yeah, that's a very good question, Misha. I, I would say that, you know, because we have, and I think you and I have spoken in the past about <clears throat> the, use, the use of ketamine. Um, and so we still try to encourage patients, well, you know, in the meantime, this is a psychedelic modality. This is an entheogenic assisted therapy, which will disrupt your default mode network and and has neurogenic properties, uh, you know, as you... Um, that, that, so they can lead to long-term changes, uh, and uh, and we use the same protocols with eye shades and music and preparation and integration um, that are being used in the whole family of psychedelic uh, assisted therapies. So I, I that's that's one thing I you know we try to say hey listen this is something that's available now e- even though insurance won't cover the experiential sessions themselves we don't. They, they don't, they still, this still model is like not in their, in the usual wheelhouse of, of, um, of, um, what the, what insurance companies consider, you know, acceptable services, but, you know, many of the other parts of it can be covered and, um, the patients can get pretty remarkable results. And there's lot, lots of nice data already on ketamine. So I, I always do, we, we already have a program at our clinic where we offer this and we have different, different, um, therapists and naturopathic physicians and, psychiatric nurse but we have a whole team of folks who know how to work with ketamine and we even have a group a ketamine group that uh, with covid times we've had to reduce quite a bit um for for social distancing but it's those are things are that are available and patients can use ketamine at home if they're uh, good candidates Um, so that's that's one thing i always tell patients and then you know um you know for many people they want to do what they want to use psilocybin they want to use natural medicines um, because the, well, they have a longer track record and, um, there's, it's, it's more, it's, it's more attuned to their, um, you know, to, to their, how they want to approach their health. And right now, um, we have no legal access here. So what we, we have take the, what we call the harm reduction approach. Um, and, uh, I was happy to see that, uh, I saw the news that, uh, the people that are joining the Biden administration's office of national drug control policy, they have a formal harm reduction initiative now. For a long time, the government even fought the idea of harm reduction. They didn't want, uh, because they felt like, oh, that means that you're not really, you're sick. What harm reduction means is, okay, well, we know that substances, people are using substances, but let's try to minimize the harm to the patient, to the person, to the public, um, and not just, okay, we have to eliminate the, eliminate the use of those substances entirely by, you know, uh, using more law enforcement or or more punitive measures. Harm reduction is about meeting people where they're at and trying to give them good education, good information, access to resources to minimize harm and, and frankly, maximize benefit too, which is the opposite of which what comes from reducing harm. So that's 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 one approach you can use for patients because they do. There are many ways that people can access these substances they are in nature you can cultivate them there are, there are places that people go and that's how it's always been and it's been like that for you know like i said since prehistory we have people have been using mushrooms we have so much evidence of it and so um if patients want to talk to us about that 
uh, and, and want to seek it out on their own in that regard. I think that's, you know, we, we support them in terms of like, well, that we know, like that's normal behavior, but here are some of the things to look out for, uh, adulterated substances, the issues around set and setting. Um, it's very important to, you know, have, have a lots of safety rails around psych- psychedelic therapy is generally very safe, but, but it is very sensitive to the conditions that people are in. So if you're not in a safe environment, you don't feel protected, you don't have good time to recover, et cetera. You don't, you don't, you're not planning any integration or preparation. Those are ways that the, the, the process could be more potentially harmful or less productive. So, and then, and then there are some, you know, medical pitfalls to watch out for, um, sub, uh, drug interactions that if people are, patients are on other types of medicines. And there are actually doctors now that are specializing their practices on helping, giving people sort of medical evaluations so that they can do, they feel more comfortable about doing this work, um, this uh, psychedelic work on their own. So those are, those are ways that doctors uh, can support patients, uh, clinics can help to, um, minimize the harm and, and also, you know, normalize their behavior. I have some of my therapy colleagues, they do see patients for integration. They'll, they'll come and talk about their experiences and, and, you know, as it's much, it's much more meaningful for patients to have a professional to share that experience with rather than what it has been. What are you doing? I don't know what that's about. I don't understand that mode. You know, there's a lot of um, stigma and uh, ignorance uh, because of, you know, all the, the war on drugs, a lot of doctors don't have any idea about this. I think that's changing now, uh, like you mentioned. Um, so anyway, that's that's kind of what... Uh, and then finally, the right to try, if we get that uh, allowed, I think that'll, for, for patients who meet criteria of terminal illness, they're potentially, if we get... That could be a way to open up legal access to to many, many patients. Um, so that that's something that I'm hoping... Um, we, we get resolved soon. Stay, stay tuned on that. That's great. Um, so that would be uh, the right to try. That would be a national then initiative or it'll be still through each individual state under like a physician supervision. I guess, you know, it, it seems like the federal law, every, everybody's protected under the federal law. So it would be nationally um, applicable. Uh, the, the states passed the state's laws are still on the books, but those were passed before the federal law because there was no federal law. Um, and, and in most states, there's there's a couple of states, like I think it's Missouri. One of the states says, oh, we, we allow right to try except for Schedule One substances. So that's very unusual. But most states don't have that provision. So I think it would be accessible. Um, you know, I think D.C. being a federal jurisdiction would be, um, you know, it would just be the federal law and controlling there. And, and it would be, um, you know, we, we're actually, we have, uh, we've written and had phone calls with the really <clears throat> higher level officials in the DEA. They didn't even know about this law, but uh, this law is being used, I should mention to your listeners, uh, for access to experimental therapies for ALS and cancer. Um, it's already been used. The, the patients have gotten it from uh, suppliers under this. So I think it's uh, just a matter of getting the um, the regulations updated, which sometimes that can take some time. But we we're, we're, we're uh, Catherine is prepared to go to court to um, you know really raise the issue uh, because they don't have all the time to wait. So I guess stay tuned, and at some point we'll need to catch up with you on this as this 
continues marching forward. So let's switch to um, talk a little bit about medical cannabis. I know you have a pretty advanced uh, expertise in this, especially in palliative care. But maybe you could just kind of overview for our listeners, how do you see a role of um, cannabis uh, in managing complex uh, symptoms in patients near the end of life? Absolutely, Misha. I mean, and I should let listeners know that part of the way you and I have connected over the years when we were both students of medicine, uh, that we were part of American Medical Student Association's uh, groups of medical students who were interested in integrative medicine or humanistic approaches to medicine. And, and that was back in the early 2000s. Um, and there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, already there was data coming out uh, that cannabis could be helpful for managing um, symptoms such as pain, nausea, muscle spasms. Um, and, um, and we were, uh, you know, really trying to talk to our colleagues, you and I were, about that data and how, how to approach it. And there was already laws in place, medical cannabis laws. The first laws were from the 1996 onward. Um, but, uh, and now it's, there, there's, it's so widespread. And so, yeah, I, I think in, in, over the last 20 years, there's been so much more refinement. Um, cannabis is, a, you know, is, is, is such a, it's a complex phytomedicine, which means that there's, um, it's, it's not just sort of like one variety. There's more varieties of cannabis types than there are dogs, species of dogs. So, and, and, and you know, there's just so many different uh, variations um, uh, in the chemical phenotype. So high C C cannabinoids are like CBD, THC, CBG, CBN. There's, uh, you know, almost a hundred of them that have been identified. And then there's the terpenes or terpenoids, limonene, pinene, myrcene, um, <clears throat> linalool, uh, caryophylline, so many different substances that are found in other, other plants that are known to have medicinal value or, uh, you know, pinene. <clears throat> pinene is named pinene because pine trees smell like secrete pinene so it's that whole that's a second layer of medicinally active substances so uh you know there's now so much like uh development on well what what variety of cannabis and how to approach how much cbd how much thc how much you know who who should have what variety of terpenes that's sort of the level of, of uh, botanical medicine that is uh, being um you know utilized and then there's so many different modes of, in, uh, of ingestion, whether it's tinctures, topicals, lotions, inhalation. I, you, you, I, I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with this. So I think, um, you know, they, the, the way to work in um, patients who have, um, uh, you know, palliative care patient population, there's, it's really, um, uh, it's the same principles of starting low, going slow, and kind of trying to get a sense of, based on the initial conditions, what might of symptom cluster. And in palliative care, it's always not just one symptom. It's a cluster of symptoms. You know, um, how, how, what will be the best way to start to tackle that? Is this something that they really need a stronger THC? It's immediate onset. It's more, it's a stronger painkilling effect. It has more of a psychoactive edge. Might that be helpful? Um, and in, in, in stronger with nausea, stronger with muscle spasms, or is do we need to start more on a higher CBD edge? Um, you know, a much stronger anxiety component present, um, a different type of pain, a desire to not have any kind of potential psychoactive effect. That's um, 
that's sort of, a, and then the, or, or do you want a blend of the two? Um, and I'm kind of describing um, what are called like the, the typologies of cannabis. There's type one, type two, and type three, which are delineated by which ones have high CBD, low THC, or one-to-one, which is type two, or um, high CBD, low THC, which is type three. So kind of knowing which of those three buckets in general your patients might fit in and then having them start on a product or preparation that moves in that direction, that's sort of a, that's a very, um, we've described that in a an, um, uh, kind of consensus article called the, in the Annals of Palliative Medicine, which is actually an open access article on uh, practical guidelines for cannabis and palliative care which your listeners can, can, can take a look at. We have some tables in there that, that'll help, um, you know, make help with decision-making. It's very, it's, it's, cannabis is remarkably versatile. People sort of, oftentimes there's individualized titrations. You don't have, it's not like dealing with methadone, which is a medicine that we train, use in palliative care where you have to be really specific about your doses. And, you know, if you miss one or use too much, you can be overly sedated or, you know, there's, there's safety issues. It's very, it's much more, there's a much more about patient autonomy, I think that drives the, um, you know, use. And, and I, I, so I always tell my patients to really feel empowered, try a couple of things. We have a cannabis education, um, a clinic that sort of shares the space with us or health coaches in our clinic. And, um, they have a nice program that we like patients to try to go through. Uh, and they can do a lot more individualized dose titrations, even through text messaging or emails, and really help them. And they, because they are not uh, medically licensed, they can actually um, offer samples, which allow the patients to have a few things to try uh, so that they can determine what's right for them. That's really the, that's really the best way to, to you know, if, if the conditions are right and laws didn't interfere, this is how you would do it. And then um, in hospice care, um, you know, th- 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 those patients are harder to reach um, because of, you know, the hospice usually covers all your medicines. But um, I know of companies that are trying to get high CBD, high dose CBD tinctures onto hospice formularies. Um, and I think there'll be a lot of um, patients who will opt to try CBD before they try morphine or other opioids for pain. Um and I think that's that's still to be seen, but I think it's very promising. I've already I've seen patients on um, who have um, you know who are really hospice patients who are um, seeking out these substances on their own and, and finding what we call opioid sparing effects. So that's been very. Uh, I think that's going to grow. Yeah, I think the cannabis is really the only substance I can think of when you mentioned the cluster. Um, clusters in palliative care, I think that's really the, the sort of the most important subject. We don't really have in palliative medicine um, something that could treat three, four, five sim- symptoms simultaneously. I mean, if the patient comes in with a cluster of five symptoms, we're going to have to prescribe five medications. And here comes <laughs> cannabis, where literally all of those symptoms can be addressed uh, simultaneously when, um, you know, you, you pick the right right dosing, right product, right delivery system. And, and, and just what you said, I mean, the, the capacity for different delivery um, and different dosing and different titration schemes is, is basically limitless. I mean, an infinite in essence with its strains. And yeah, so that's right. So, so do you think the sort of a, a, a future of um, 
cannabinoid medicine, at least in palliative care, let's just say it already here? Or do you think, are we still sort of just kind of in a baby steps entering and, and we haven't really gotten there yet? Well, yeah, there's always, we, we're never, we, we should, we're still, still, there's still so much to go. I mean, um, number one, um, any, any form of medicine is going to be, we're such a unfortunately heavily regulated, um, you know, practice in society and it's really hard to do. And we all have different forms of state and federal and this and that, and even international, like, you know, standards and norms. And so it's really important that, and, and, you know, all possible, if, if a possible scenario is possible in medicine, like a certain type of patient issue restriction, um, it's going to, it's, it's going to show up. And, and so you really have, that's why you have to have really universal, uh, uniform systems that protect all possible scenarios. And because of cannabis's status as a schedule one drug, it's still very limited in terms of how it can get into places like nursing homes or hospitals or, um, you know, settings where, which are, are really difficult for with, without really good regulation. So we're still very much, it's still very much an outpatient, um, you know, uh, product preparation. It's still very much, um, there's still access barriers for people who can't afford the costs of dispensaries or aren't able to grow it, um, or, um, you know, seek, seek it that way. So we're still very much, I think, early stages, that being said, I mean, it's still, we're still way better than we were, in the, you know, 20 years ago when you and I first started talking about this, because there is a, um, there's a lot more awareness, um, you know, at, at in various state levels, uh, a lot more uh, acceptance. And, and, you know, I think it's really important to note, I think last month, you know, the international treaty, the drug control conventions, which is the kind of the, every country in the world almost is a member of this, this treaty. Um, they, they, the WHO formally said that cannabis should be removed from the most restrictive category and the UN adopted that, uh, last month. So now if you go online and look at the uh, list of schedules of drugs and, you know, where they all fall in the international law, cannabis is no longer in the equivalent of schedule one in the international law. That's, that's a huge change. So we're still, that just happened last month. So what's, how is this going to impact cannabis care you know, access in uh, other smaller countries in the world that are much more, you know, uh, that, 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 that who, who take the UN uh, treaties much more uh, robustly than, than the U.S. does, unfortunately. The U.S. uses the treaties when, when we want to. Anyway, that's some politics aside of there, but I, I, I think we're going to see some more. And then, and then the uh, Congress is now going to pass. Uh, I keep hearing that they're planning this year to to do comprehensive legislation to remove cannabis from Schedule One, uh, you know, now that the Democrats are in power, so that might that that'll really move things forward if we can get that, uh, especially to access to the more vulnerable patients in settings like I mentioned, hospitals and nursing homes, um, and that kind of thing. So I think we're that that's what's that's what's going to come. And the other thing I want to mention, Misha, is I'm really excited to see more and more cannabis falling back into the family of, of botanical medicines, you know, uh, for a long time, we've kind of treated it as a special plant. I mean, it is a really remarkable plant. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, historically in traditional medicine, traditional Indian medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, where cannabis has been used for thousands of years. Um, it, uh, it was, no, it was rarely used as a single agent. Um, it was combined with other plants 
and I think that there's a there's a because we know so much about um, other plant medicines. Um, I've already seen formulations where cannabis is being combined with things like melatonin or things like valerian and other types of plants that we know have safe and gentle effects in pain or anxiety or insomnia. And that actually what might lower the dose of CBD and THC that is needed, which will make it even more tolerable for patients. So I think that's going to be a, um, another future wave. Well, I think that is all the time we have. I think ending on this positive note, I love it. I, I, I think hoping that uh, we will see some political efforts going at uh, removing it from Schedule 1 and making it more accessible, I think we all can agree on, on, on this podcast would be a, a most likely a good thing, assuming that we can maintain a good quality control and... Um, remove bed players so to speak from the market so i think with that that's all uh the time we have um thank you sunil so so much for joining us i i hope we'll bring you back we'll definitely bring him back so yes thank you it's been a pleasure thank you so much i really enjoyed our conversation i look forward to uh, to to future conversations this is the gw integrative medicine podcast from the gw office of integrative medicine and health I'm Dr. Misha Kogan. And I'm Janet Rodriguez. Thank Thanks you for listening. listening.